Ooh, good catch. Well, I trust that your time today was good. I hope that your engagement with God in solitude was um, fitting and meaningful. And um, in our session tonight, um, I'm going to ask God's help. So let's go to him now. Father, we do seek your help as we seek to um, know you better. Um, And tonight's talk, especially to know you with our minds, with our imaginations. And so give us wisdom. Um, We thank you for men like C.S. Lewis who help us to have wisdom about our imaginations and how they can help us to know you better. And so be with us, speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So in this, uh, in this talk tonight, this the first talk um, was a, a theological talk, you could say. It was an attempt to awaken us to the reality of the, the present situation with you being here and God being here and God pursuing you and you being confronted with a choice. And then the second talk this morning, you might think of as just spiritual counsel, right? There was lots of just wisdom about how do you, how do you engage with God, what pitfalls to avoid. And then tonight... I want to talk about the role of the imagination in the Christian life. And this is a, not a topic, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear a lot about this growing up, about the imagination for the Christian life, because often we associate the imagination with the creatives, with, with guys like, there's Todd, Todd's having lunch with Todd today, we're talking movies and stuff, and or Eric and Gunter, and we were talking movies and creatives, and that's where the imagination belongs. It's, the, it's this ability we have to, to create and to make. But the reality is, is that all of us have one of these. God has given all of us an imagination. And I thought at one level I was going to go uh, for this talk and talk about some Narnia. That, was, that would have been fun. Um, and uh, the way that we all use stories to interpret our experiences and to make sense out of our lives. And so good stories are important because they help us to make sense out of our lives and interpret our experience. Um, I thought about how stories and imagination enable us to kind of sneak past some of the inhibitions we have. They allow the truth to appear in its real power and potency, um, because we're, we're ready for it if it comes straight on, but sometimes a snor- story can sneak in behind. I thought about going there. Both of those would have been good. Lewis is helpful there. But what I actually want to do is focus on the more general imagination as it relates directly to the Christian life, okay, as directly. And so first I want to kind of define what I, what I mean by imagination, and then I want to show how imagination, our imaginations can go wrong and fuel sin, and then I want to talk about one way that imagination can directly and practically serve you in your daily Christian life. That's the goal. So let's begin with this definition question. I want to distinguish, Lewis does this, he distinguishes between reason and imagination. Both of them are things that our minds do, but they're different, okay? Reason is the activity of the mind that focuses on questions of truth, what's true and what's false. Whereas imagination is the faculty or the activity of our mind that focuses on meaning. I'm going to try to explain the difference between truth and meaning. So reason, when we use reason, we analyze things. We dissect them. We take them apart. If you're looking at a forest and you're using your reason, you're going to take it apart and look at every individual tree as an individual tree. When we use our reason, we abstract. We make deductions 
We draw conclusions. That's what reason does. It's the abstracting, dissecting, analyzing part of your mind. And all of us do this. All of us use it to make arguments. Imagination's different, though. Imagination doesn't carve things up and take them apart. Imagination, if it's looking at a forest, takes in the forest as a whole and tries to get a quality from it, an impression. Imagination is an impression-forming faculty. It doesn't give you definitions. That's what reason does. Reason will give you a nice, tight definition. When you use your reason, we try to get definitions. Imagination, on the other hand, wants you to get a feel for something, an impression, a quality, a flavor. It's about capturing the quality or flavor of a thing. It, it's an imagination that, that if I say, um, I don't, so this won't resonate maybe with you guys, but to me, the Minnesotaness of Minnesota, you can just fill in your hometown, okay, where you live. Okay, there you go. So fill in, or, or when I think about the, the West Texasness of West Texas, where I grew up, it has a, there's a quality or a flavor that's built up out of impressions that were made on my imagination. The homeliness of your home. Think about the childhood home you grew up in. There's an impression. How did that impression get formed? It wasn't by a definition. Nobody gave you a definition of it, but there were all of these kind of images that flashed through your mind like that, and they build up an impression. That's what imagination does. And so Lewis is going to say that reason is the organ that focuses on truth, questions of true and false. Is something true or is it false? That's what reason is trying to determine. But imagination asks the question, what does it mean? What is it? What's its quality? And the, and the thing is about that order between those two, imagination comes first. Before you can evaluate whether something's true or false, you have to know what it is, what it means. And so I'm going to try to illustrate this. How does imagination help us get at meaning? And to do so, I'm going to talk about creation. So everybody, you probably heard this verse, right? Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The Bible teaches us that creation, all of creation, reveals God. His invisible attributes, Paul says in Romans. His invisible attributes... His power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, made things, that's creation, make invisible attributes visible. They help you see them. You see his power, his divine nature, his glory in the heavens, for example. So, but how? How does, how does nature reveal God? Well, it doesn't it doesn't say, nature doesn't say God is powerful in words, okay? Nature doesn't teach you that God is powerful and glorious. You, you have a Bible that teaches you that in words. But nature will show you, creation will show you what that statement means. Because, because we've experienced nature, like you've seen a tornado tear across the sky, You've stood at the top of a mountain at sunset. Because you've had those experiences of reality, when you read in your Bible that God is powerful and glorious, you've got boxes. You've got categories to know that's what that means. That's what I mean by meaning. Imagination, your engagement with the world, that forming of the impression enables you to go, I know what the word powerful means because it's been built up out of experiences as my imagination takes in impressions from the world around me. Does that make sense? Like, though, otherwise, those words don't mean anything to you. The word glory doesn't mean anything to you. The word powerful doesn't mean anything 
to you. Let me, let me illustrate more with Psalm, Psalm 19. So it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, it, and I, I bet if I ask you, what does that mean? What does it mean that the heavens declare the glory of God? I'm willing to bet that nine out of ten of you would say something like, well, the heavens are really big and God's really big. Like, the heavens are majestic and God is majestic. That's how the heavens declare the glory of God. So they're really big, we're really small, that's what the heavens say about God. Or you might say, I've seen the beauty of a sunset or a starry sky, and that's a pointer to the fact that God is beautiful, like we just sung. And those are good answers. But there's interest, it's interesting that as the psalmist goes on to explain this, notice what he says. Listen carefully in Psalm 19. In them, the heavens that declare the glory, in them, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Now, those are images, so stop and think about them for a minute. The sun is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man who runs his course with joy. So David, the psalmist, looks at the sun as it moves across the sky. And then he looks at a groom on his wedding day and he makes a connection. That's like that. He looks at the sun again and he's reminded of a, of a warrior, a strong man. That's what the word strong man there means. It's a warrior, a mighty warrior running into battle with spear raised and eyes blazing. And he says, that's, that's like the sun. So the sun is like the groom and the sun is like the mighty man. And there, there's, there, there's the images and they're building up an idea of what it means when the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Because it's like the son, is like the bridegroom, is like the mighty man. The sun is bright, triumphant. The bridegroom's face is shining as he stands in the aisle doing this, right? Waiting, waiting. He's thrilled. And David says, that's like the sun, and that's like God. It's like the warrior who's intense but joyful because he's going into battle doing what he was built to do. And notice something here. Notice how it's something outside the Bible, like an experience of the sun and a bridegroom and a warrior, that help us understand the meaning of the Bible. Like, if you've never seen the sun move triumphantly across the sky, Psalm 19 doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't mean anything. It's just words. It's empty words. If you've never seen the joy of a bridegroom's face on his wedding day, that verse doesn't mean anything to you. If you've never seen, if you can't imagine a warrior charging into the battle for the joy in it, the psalm doesn't mean anything to you. And if the psalm doesn't mean anything to you, you won't be able to hear what the heavens are declaring. Now, notice something else about those images. These images that help us to know the sun and that therefore help us to hear the glory of God in the heavens are all those two images right there. They're both very masculine images. Do you think about that? It's a bridegroom and a warrior. And so one of the things that this passage has done for me is not just build up my idea of what the heavens are saying, but have built up my impression about masculinity. Here's what I mean. Masculinity, true masculinity, faithful masculinity is bright like the sun. 
It's ecstatic like a groom on his wedding day. It's focused, intense, and deeply joyful like a warrior doing what he was built to do. And I've heard a definition of masculinity before, and I've used it when I've taught. It's this definition. True masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. That's what masculinity is. The glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. That's a good definition, I think. It's a, I think it's a faithful biblical definition. But it's a definition. How do you make it real? How do you help people know what it means? And for me, where do I go? Psalm 19. And I say, well, what? I talk about the sun. I think about the sun and I think about wedding days and bridegrooms and battles. And then other images start to come in, like images from guys like C.S. Lewis. So one of my favorite quotes in all of Lewis is from The Horse and His Boy, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And in that book, King Loon of Arkenland says this. He's asked what it means to be a king. He says, this is what it means to be a king. To be first in every desperate attack to be last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and again in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder at a scantier meal than any man in your land. That's what it means to be a king. First in, last out, laughing loudest. Okay. Now where have I seen that before? I saw it in Psalm 19. I see it when the sun rises. I saw it on a wedding day. I've seen it in every war movie that I've ever been to. And so these images, all of these images begin to build up and they create an impression about what masculinity is that then provides a model that I want to aspire to as I'm a husband or a father or or a professor so that I can embody the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. So all, and all of that, if you just notice, just I'll, I'll, this, is a little, this, this is free, you don't have to pay for this one. All of this lands on Jesus, doesn't it? Like if you start to think about those images, you go, wait a minute, Jesus has a face in the Bible, it says Jesus has a face that's shining like the sun in its full strength. Jesus is a bridegroom who greatly rejoices over his bride. Jesus is a warrior who for the joy set before him ran his race, finished his course, endured the cross, and scorned its shame. All of these images are really preaching the glory of Jesus. And they create an impression. Now, so that's what imagination is. It's this impression-receiving ability of our minds that builds up and gives us a quality. Now, how does it go wrong? Because it can go wrong. Like all good things, it can go wrong. Well, one of the ways it goes wrong is it's it's one of the main avenues for temptation. Okay, imagination appeals to our emotions. It provokes our emotions. And our emotions, when they are uh, out of whack, can carry out a blitz on our faith. So, for example, you think Christianity is true. I believe it's true. But then bad news or peer pressure or some danger creates a mood that makes it feel less true. Or maybe... Something, something uh, you want to do something sinful and you think it'd be really convenient if Christianity wasn't true right about now. It'd be really nice. And so your imagination, what does it do? It carries out a blitz. It creates a mood, an impression on you that kind of overrides that deep faith commitment that you have to Jesus. And so you do the thing that you wouldn't otherwise do if you were in your right mind because the imagination, that impression of sin has overwhelmed you. 
see that role, here's, here's an example of what I mean. Genesis chapter three, you ever thought about the imagination in the fall? What does Satan do when he comes to Adam and Eve? He comes to them, so remember, Adam, God had put Adam and Eve in the garden and he said to them, you may surely eat of every tree, every one of them, except one. You may, this is, this is the, you may surely eat of every tree except that one. Okay, so one no in a world full of yes. Okay, now what did the serpent do when he came? He said, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Notice what he just did. He's taken a true thing. There is a no in God's world, one no. And he's blown it out of proportion. He's taken a a true thing and he's blown it out of proportion. God gave Adam and Eve a world of lavish pleasures and one restraint and the serpent takes that one no and he magnifies it. He turns a single prohibition into a total prohibition. God made a world of yes. The serpent says, hey, I've got an idea. Here's a world of no. Is that the world you live in, Eve? Isn't that the world that God made? It's a world of no, right? And he presents it where? To her imagination. She looks around and she says, yeah, God said no. And then not only does he, he goes a step further. Rather than blowing a true thing out of proportion, he shrinks a true thing out of existence. He tells Eve, you won't die. Don't worry about it. You won't die. But God knows you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him knowing good and evil. What's he doing? He's saying, she's saying, God's being stingy. He's, he's holding you back. He's keeping you down. What is that? That's an appeal to the imagination. Imagine God, not as a loving father, Eve. Imagine him as the great forbidder. He's a miser. He's a killjoy. He's a cosmic tease. He created all of these great things, and then he told you no. That's the kind of God who made you. Go ahead, eat it. And here's what Eve does. She buys in to that fantasy. She goes where, her, where that false imagination takes her and she jumps in and then Adam follows her with both feet. So it's an appeal to the imagination that brought ruin to the human race. Now, what does that mean for our lives? Well, for one thing, the serpent is still telling lies about God and his generosity and his goodness. And we're regularly confronted with forbidden things in our imagination and that little voice says, there won't be any consequences, don't worry about it. But I want to focus on another way. Have you ever noticed that bitterness, anger, and resentment are all fueled by your imagination? Probably don't call it imagination. You call it your thought life. Okay, your thought life. Bitterness, anger, and resentment are fueled by the imagination. Someone does something to hurt us or offend us, and for some reason, we, what do we do? We play that tape over and over and over and over again in our imagination. Why do we do that? Because for some reason, it feels good to feel offended. We, we get some kind of pleasure out of nursing that grievance and playing that tape over and over and over again and stewing in it and churning it. It's like um, an itch, and we like to scratch it. It's painful, it's ugly, but we still scratch it. And, what's, and where's, where's that taking place? It's in your imagination as you play that tape over and over and over again. Or take envy. Envy is another sin that works this way, malice. Envy is fueled by the great offense of other people's blessings. 
You see the blessings of others, the success of others, and you look at them with envious eyes, and what do you do? We churn over it. Why'd they get that thing? Why'd they get it? It's not fair. How come, how, why not me? Why not me? When's my turn? And we just play. We look at their things and we just play them over. Where? Where's that playing? Where's that tape playing? It's in your imagination. Imagination fuels what Lewis calls the all I want state of mind. You ever had this? I bet all of you have had this. Most of our daily disappointments, our low-grade happiness, come from the all I want state of mind. This is what this is. We, we look at our past, or we look to what we want in the future, we look at the blessings of other people, and we live in this kind of irritation and annoyance, and we just say, all I want, like a mantra. All I want is a house that's a little bit better. All I want is one that's a little bit nicer. All I want is a little respect. All I want is a little peace and quiet. All I want is a little vacation, a little appreciation. That's all I want. That's all I want. That's all I want. Where's, where's that all I want happening? It's in your imagination. It's your thought life. You're, there's something that you don't have, and it's, it's an amazing thing, right? All we want is a little more of what's not making us happy right now. And in truth, some of those things might actually do us some good. Like it might be, a vacation could be good for us. Some rest, some relaxation. That might help us if we're burned out. But it'll only help us if we're not living in this all I want peevishness, this state of mind. Um... The importance of this came home to me one time um, a couple years ago when I was writing my, my, my book on Lewis. Uh, it was May or so, and I was planning for my June. So I'm a professor. June is, are important months because it's when I catch up on all the home projects that I haven't done around the house uh, during the school year. And it's when I do a lot of writing because I don't have a lot of time to write during the school year. And so um, I had plans for June. I was going to get up. I was going to go to work. I was going to get some writing done. I was going to come home and play baseball with my kids. And then I was going to make progress on the house on the weekends. That was my plan for June. So I'd set aside the time. It was all looking good. And then at the end of May, I broke my hand, okay, playing softball. I dove, landed on it. It was awful. So I'm driving home from the urgent care with the brace on, okay, and, all, and I just have these waves of emotion just running over me because all I can think about is all of the, my, what's my imagination working, right? All the things I'm not gonna get to do now. And I'm thinking all I want is a hand that works. That's all I want. All I want is a, a healthy hand because I was thinking how am I gonna type a book with a broken hand? How am I gonna turn a screwdriver or wield a hammer with a broken hand? How, this is the worst one. How am I gonna play catch with my kids with a broken hand? I mean, baseball is a big deal in our family. We live in Minnesota. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's cold there, okay? It's, it's like, like, it's gonna be cold until April or May. And so we, we look forward to spring all year long because it's like we finally get to be outside. And so I've been looking forward. We're gonna play some baseball. And now, boom, I can't, I can't catch with a broken hand. So I'm devastated. And I'm just feeling, and it's just weighing on me as I'm driving home. And in that moment, I had C.S. Lewis in my ear going, you don't, you don't have to live in that all I want state of mind. There's another thing you can say instead of all I want. Instead of playing that tape of all the things you might do, here's what you could do. You could say, God, your will be done. I'm gonna, I, this isn't the story I would have written for myself, God. This is not a part of my good story. You write better stories than I do. You write better stories than I do. And so all things, God, I believe work together for good. All things work together for good, even this broken hand. And so I'm gonna receive this with gratitude. 
and pray that you help me to endure hard things with joy. That's a different, so that means stop playing the tape of all the grievances in my head and instead receive the blessing, the hard blessing that God had just given me. And that's not just true of hard things, it's true of good things. Sometimes this is, I don't know if this is your experience. Lewis said one time, sometimes we often almost sulkily reject the good thing that God wants to give us because our minds are so fixated on some other good that he's not giving us. Like, God wants to give you a good thing, and you're clinging so tightly to some other thing that he's not giving you, and he's like trying to pry your hand open, and you're like fighting him. And he's like, no, no, if you just open your hand, just open your hand, just open your hand, it's, it's good, here's a good, and, and if you would just do it, you'd, oh, this is awesome, this is amazing, thank you. But instead, you're just clinging, why? It's our imagination. We had expectations, we had hopes, we had dreams, and when they don't come true, we cling to them. We cling to the old good instead of receiving the new good. So that's how imagination can go wrong. And I, um, I feel that every day in my life about how often my expectations and my imagination are interrupted and interfered with by God's plan, which is in the end always better, but in the moment is so hard. Now, last thing I want to say about the imagination tonight. I want to talk about one way that we can use our imagination in our daily Christian living in a good way. It's what Lewis calls, this is a strange phrase, good pretending. Okay? Good pretending. There's two different kinds of pretending. One kind of pretending is called hypocrisy. Okay? That's when we pretend to be something we're not and our Fakery is in place of reality. We substitute the fake thing for the real thing. Okay, that's hypocrisy. That's bad. We don't want to do that. Good pretending is when our pretense leads up to reality. It's like what children do when they pretend to be all grown up so that they can learn how to grow up. Like that's good pretending. You want them to pretend to be grown up because then they learn to be grown up. That's how it happens. So here's what Lewis says about the Christian life. The Christian life is about good pretending. It begins with God pretending. This is a strange way to think about your salvation, but I want you to think about it. In yourself, in myself, we are selfish, greedy, grumbling, rebellious human beings. But then you trust in Jesus, and so what does God say? I'm going to pretend like they're Jesus. I'm gonna, this is what Lewis says. It's God's going to pretend. I'm going to pretend that they're in, my, they're in my son, so I'm gonna pretend that they're my son, and I'm gonna treat them with all of the love and joy and delight that Jesus deserves, even though they don't deserve it. I'm gonna pretend, that's, that's God pretending. That, the Bible, the, the theological word for that is justification. Okay? It's being right with God because of what Jesus has done. And it works because we trust in Jesus. He lived for us, he died for us, he was raised for us, and so when we trust in him, we're in him, and so God pretends. And the whole point of his pretending is that that would become true and real for us. And so then we join in. This is what we mean. We clothe ourselves with Christ. We, we put on Christ, that language in the Bible about putting him on. We're pretending. I'm dressing up like Jesus. Please treat me like Jesus when you come to him in prayer. But it happens even more in our obedience. This is one of the ways. Um, so the Bible says, love God, the two great commandments, right? Love God, love your neighbor. And I find, I don't know if you find, I find that my heart is not filled with love for God all the time. Warm-hearted affection doesn't spill over from me every day. It's not, it's not the natural inclination of my heart. Nor, like, people often are very frustrating and annoying. They're difficult. I don't know if you've met them. But they are, right? I don't feel the love your neighbor as yourself. I, 
That's hard. That's hard. So what do you do? What do you do when you've got this command that you know God says, this is the, this is the whole point of it all. Love God, love people. That's what you're here on earth for. And you go, I don't do either of those very well. So here's one suggestion. Here's how good pretending can help you. So here's, here's what I, this is literally what I do. So I'm faced with a situation that's hard. I'm not loving God or I'm not loving people. And I think, I imagine, this is imagination, right? I imagine, what would I be like if I experienced a deep gospel renewal in my soul? Like, what, what kind of person would I be? Like, if I really believed that God was for me and that he was gonna meet all of my needs and that I didn't need to use people to get what I wanted because I knew that God accepts me and approves me and embraces me because of what Jesus has done and that I was just overflowing with his kind of love. I just imagine that version of myself that doesn't exist, <laughs> okay? I imagine that version, the one that's free and happy and stable and overflowing with love. And then I say, okay, I'm gonna take that imaginary me and I'm gonna place him in this situation, the hard one, and, I'm, and I say, what would he do if he were here instead of me? What would the imaginary, life-giving, full of joy, what would that version of me do in this situation? If I really loved God from my heart, if I really loved my neighbor as myself, what would I do? And, and then when I have that answer, I ask for God's help, and then I try to do it. I don't wait. I don't sit and wait. God, I'm not gonna do any of the loving things until you zap me and fix me together. No, it's, I'm gonna say, what would I do? Imagine, use my imagination. What would I do if I really loved people? Okay, that's what I would do. I can picture myself doing it. Now, God, I'm not that guy yet, but I'm gonna ask for your help and I'm gonna go pretend to be him. And here's the amazing thing. I don't know if you've ever discovered this. You ever, have you ever um, pretended to like somebody and then found that you actually started to like them? Like, you really are like, oh, that guy. It's always a guy. Um, <laughs> Maybe it's not always a guy. Uh, and you're like, oh, that person. And, and then you go, it's okay, I'm a Christian. I, I need to love them. So I'm gonna pretend to love them. And then you find in pretending to love them that love actually begins to happen. And pretending to be kind, you actually begin to come to And this is different. Let me hear this. This is different than fake it till you make it. Okay? Because fake it till you make it is based on your efforts and what you can do. Good pretending is based on what? It's based on the work of God. God's pretending. God's calling you a child, an obedient child. You are a son. You are a daughter. And then God says, now live like one. Act like one. Grow up into one. Pretend to be one until you become one. And I'll help you. This is the beauty of the good news. Paul says it. This is, here's the, 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 the way the Bible says it. This is the last thing I'll say. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God's at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Like, you, you work it out. It's not, it's not fit. you fake it till you make it. It's all on you. No, no, it's God's at work in you. So what should you do? Well, you should work it out. You should be defined by his grace, by what he says about you, by what he's done for you, and then you get that vision of yourself in Jesus. It's not, it's not even this. Like We often say in a situation, what would Jesus do? But that, that question is so abstract because you're like, he's a medieval carpenter and he's heaven and he's Jesus. I, what would he do? Like, he would do this really well. Don't ask that question. Ask this question. What would you do if you were full of Jesus? What would you do 
If you were full of Jesus, if he was everything to you, what would you do? How would you live? How would you treat your wife or your husband or your kids or your coworkers? How would you live? Imagine that. Just imagine. Use your, this amazing faculty that you have called the imagination. Use it and then say, God, help me to live into that, to lean into that, to take one step in obedience to that. Let's pray. Father, Imagination is a terrifying thing. What it's capable of, the wreckage it can cause when it is loose and when it's fueled by sin and fuels further sin. And at the same time, it's this amazing gift that you've given us to receive impressions from the world you've made, to build them up in our minds, to live into them, to aspire to them. Sanctify our imaginations, oh God. Purify them for your kingdom. Help us to use them to love you and to love other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.